Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey Loose Units listeners, my name is Tegan Higginbotham and before you go worrying, don't worry, your regularly scheduled episode of Loose Units is right around the corner. But just before we dive in, I wanted to share a really quick little anecdote with you. Um, I am Paul's wife, I'm John's daughter-in-law and occasionally people will come up and ask me if John and Paul behave in real life and talk in real life the way they do on this show. And I think this little example just sums up the Loose Units dynamic so perfectly. It is Sunday, currently as I record this, it is Father's Day in Australia. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers and father figures out there. You know, this morning I made sure I drove out to my dad's place. We made him pancakes in the morning, exchanged a few gifts, all that sort of stuff. Paul called his dad and in typical Loose Units fashion, the conversation quickly changed from being about Father's Day to John suggesting that there might be a dead body in the apartment next to them and he and Paul (laughs) chatting on the phone as John slid mirrors under the door looked at how long the light had been on discussing whether or not they call the cops and whose blame it will be if there starts being a smell this is the sort of shit they talk about all the time so please enjoy another episode of Loose Units from two genuinely genuinely loose men. Hi everyone, I'm, well, it's obvious, I'm John Verhoeven, and I was a cop back in the 80s in Sydney. And I'm Paul Verhoeven, John's son. I'm an author, and I wrote two books about Dad's time as a cop. The first five seasons of Loose Units spanned my time in general duties, forensics, my time as a firefighter, and even my stint running a funeral home. This season we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes and looking at what happened there. From Snowtown to the family, from the Morehouse murders to haunted highways, this season of Loose Units is your go-to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Hello and welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Dad, I'm going to read something from a missing persons poster, uh, and this is back in the 80s. Reward for $15,000 missing Kathleen McCormack Durst. Missing since February the 1st, 1982. Kathy's mother is offering $15,000 for information leading to her whereabouts. White female, 29 years old, 5'6", 121 pounds, blonde, last seen wearing full-length beige down coat and suede brown boots. Kathy was... In her last year of medical school, Albert Einstein, at the time of her disappearance, anyone possessing information about Kathleen Durst should call either Detective Mike Struck, and then it's got Mike's phone number and address, which I'm assuming are not currently in service, or a private number provided by the McCormick family. All calls will be confidential and payment of reward will be by the direction of the family only. Now, this is, of course, the disappearance of Kathleen McCormick, uh... Well, Kathleen McCormack was her maiden name. Kathleen Durst, who was the wife of Robert Durst, uh, the heir to a real estate empire. And Robert Durst was born in the um, back in the early 40s, and he passed away last year. And the case of Robert Durst was dealt with in a five-part documentary series called The Jinx, which is currently on Binge. Now, this is not a sponsored spot. This is not an ad. But somebody told me about how The Jinx ended and the ending of it was so... First of all, massive spoiler. I'm not going to spoil it for you just yet. But by the way, everybody, if you haven't seen The Jinx, that's okay. You have two options. And Dad, I hope you concur. There are two options here. You can either pause this and go and watch the five-part series on Binge. Or you can just listen to this and we'll kind of walk you through it. But either way, Robert Durst is who we are dealing with here. Grew up extremely wealthy. And uh, he was part of, like I said, a real estate empire extremely odd man who had an extremely odd life but we're going to step through the timeline here because he met Kathy McCormack 
1971. And Dad, I think it's safe to say that they are from pretty different worlds at this point. Is that correct? Definitely. But it was a very, very sort of rapid whirlwind. Mm. Incredibly quick. No no mucking around. It, it, look, I think it's fair to say that it would have been very um, sort of almost love at first sight. Yeah. And within a fortnight, he took her away from her her world to his house. And interestingly, Paul, you know my views on him and I I was sort of beguiled by him. Yes, and I find this... I was talking to Tegan about this this morning um, because he's a very dangerous, very bad man and we were very curious as to why you said you liked him. And that's a quote. You said you laughed and said, I liked him, yeah. which I, I found kind of unsettling could you explain why well i can because i i happen to know a psychopath that probably doesn't listen to this show what are you talking about i know a dead set fucking psychopath okay that's between me and him and <laughs> you can't Paul, just drop that dad no, I hang on hang on i'm what He's... i'm saying no I, I need to say that he sure. has family that love him mm-hmm. and He's a very personable person. He's charismatic, charming, and people have got this this idea mm-hmm. because they can be sort of beguiling and they can be charming and charismatic. I mean, yeah. you can be all of those and be a killer and a psychopath. I mean, a psychopath, a psychopath is not... Look, a psychopath does not mean... A psychopath does not mean a murderer. When you take the psychopath test, there are different tests for it, and some of them have been debunked. Basically, a psychopath does not experience actual emotions. They mimic them in order to get things. Okay, well, in that case, I don't think um, Mr. Durst was a psychopath. Probably a sociopath of some sort. But regardless of the pathology, when he met Kathy, she was a dental assistant, and she was... I think she just turned 19. She wasn't from money. She was from a working-class family... Uh, and suddenly she's met this guy who's almost 30. He's a, you know, it, it, he's extremely rich. And you, look, I'm not going to equate look, the two, but you and mum can relate to the meeting in a fortnight and really kind of okay. escalate. Agree, agree. But Paul, something that struck me very, very, that it just struck me as being fascinating. And to me, it mm-hmm. sort of ties in with his demeanor. And I mean, I saw the five-part series. Yeah. I've seen a lot of footage with, of him, mm-hmm. and he owned a health food store mm-hmm. in a very affluent part of America. Well, he was meant to pick up the mantle, and because he's the eldest of this family, and he was meant to, if you believe the accounts, he was meant to be taking over the family business, but instead... He, you know, he smoked a lot of weed. He, uh, you know, he was studying at university and he meets this girl and they basically head off and they start a health food store, right? Yes, Which right. seems like sort of moving outside of the family um, business and outside what was expected from him. Um, but he, which I find and, interesting. Yeah, but he succumbed to his father's pressure and he shut the business down and he and his... Uh, newlywed wife mm. they came back to New York because um, this this was a billion this is a billion dollar company and to, to, to put the listeners sort of give them some perspective the family associated with people like Jackie Onassis Durst one of his friends mm-hmm. a girlfriend is the the genesis the her name became synonymous with... Oh, it was Mia Farrow's... Uh, he was dating Mia Farrow's sister at one point, Prudence, and she's the uh, namesake of Dear Prudence, the Beatles song off the way. That's White right. Album. I mean, this yeah. is a family that... Yeah. I mean, they were, they were what we would call today a sort of a, a society family. They were philanthropic. Robert was supposed to be the heir apparent to this extraordinary New York real estate dynasty. Yeah, and you could argue, and I think the documentary brings up the fact that Robert seems to... Extreme wealth warps you in ways that 
cannot be disputed. Um, the heir of the Disney empire wrote a really great think piece a couple of years back about how private jets are sort of a great metaphor for how rich people, and I've talked about this with you before, Dad, how rich people don't understand normal people. They don't, because they don't have to interact with them in any kind of meaningful way, right? They get to bypass the basic, those sort of moments where you're stuck in a queue and you have to be part of the masses. There's no, you know, they get to just literally coast above it. They have a separate line. They don't have to fly with people. They don't have to abide by timetables, go through the same check-in. And when you're as rich as Robert Durst, one of the interesting things at the start of the jinx is if we cut forward a few decades just for a second, he's caught for uh, he's caught for doing something very very bad. Uh, decades later, actually, absolutely monstrous, and he's caught because he, whilst on the run, is caught on CCTV as a fugitive stealing a sandwich from a supermarket. And one of the detectives posits the fact that he's, he's so fucking rich and he's so out of touch that he literally does not think the rules apply to him because he doesn't think about the world as a place with actual consequences. And okay. re- and, yeah. If you apply that, if you retroactively apply that to a lot of his behavior, mm. and you know, even the fact that law enforcement keeps getting stonewalled by his family and all these bizarre things keep happening, as we will uh, chronicle, mm. I think that's worth bearing in mind as we move forward through the timeline. He had this very unusual an uncontrollable desire that manifested itself insofar as the the way you've put him um, and described him very accurately is almost a contempt. Because one of the things, when the family ultimately offered him a sum of money that I can hardly even imagine, apparently the straw that broke the camel's back, and the camel being in this case the father, to pay this recalcitrant child, even though he's an adult, out was that he had a habit one of his many habits was in the building where the head office was his uncle he'd go into the uncle's office and you know you've got your desk and you've got your little trash can next to the yeah. and he'd pee in it all the time what did you know that no he, he used to pee in his uncle's trash can in the office this is when he was working for the company but one of the other things when he was when he was arrested later on he was actually one of the minor offenses that he committed on top of all the terrible offenses was that he went up to a like a lolly stand in a shop and he just pissed on it now i think that's odd yeah he was he was really absolutely bizarre people can give kind of character references all they want but the fact is if we go timeline wise he meets kathy right um in 71 and they have all these ups and downs and the documentary talks about i mean full disclosure everybody one of the big draw cards of the documentary is that durst actually sits down with the documentary makers and talks through his side of things but what i love is that it doesn't then become beholden to his moral barometer Mm. it constantly cuts back to people who are contradicting his point of view it is really interesting in that respect but one of the things he talks about was he tries to claim that they were both very physical and they both fought with each other and that the uh what it, it basically it came out that the relationship started to fall apart and became abusive and he starts telling his story and saying that they were both just as bad as each other but what their friends tell and then what hospital records tell is that uh, kathy was being assaulted quite badly both of them started having affairs um, one of which was the Mia Farrow Prudence connection that Dad mentioned before. Uh, she started having affairs. And then if you go through her diaries, she actually talks about the fact that she wanted to have a kid. He was extremely abusive. She got pregnant and he forced her to have an abortion. She ends up in the hospital several times uh, receiving treatment for various injuries. Uh, and she starts talking to her friends about this. Mm. Now... One of her best friends is uh, Gilberte, and she goes to a party at her friend's house. This is on January 31st, 1982. This is a very important date. She goes to her friend's house, and then partway... And Durst talks about this as well, although his perspective is very strange. Kathy gets a call from Durst while she's at the party. She picks up the call, and then she tells her friends, including Gilberte, that she's going to have to go back home, which is, I think it's quite a long drive back to the house. It's very late at night. She tells her friend, and I quote, if something happens to me, check it out. I'm afraid of what Bobby will do, right? Now, from this point on, all of the, uh, I guess, testimony about Kathy's movements come from Durst. Now, they don't come from Durst straight away. Four days later, Durst rocks up to the police station and is like, my wife has gone missing, right? Mm. Now, what he says is, 
this is his account. Kathy comes back to the house, they have a fight, and then she says she wants to go back to New York, right? And so according to his accounts, he then takes her to the train station, right? Mm -hmm. Drops her off. And then uh, she calls apparently from a payphone or he calls her from a payphone and they establish that she's gotten back to their apartment, which Mm. is uh, at this beautiful apartment building in Manhattan, right? The detective who I cited on the wanted poster at the start of the episode talks to the doorman and the doorman says he saw Kathy enter the building. And then there are, uh, there are clips of the Dean from the university saying, yeah, she was, um, she called called in. in sick. Yeah. So she's called in sick. And so at this point, um, they say to Durst, why didn't you contact her sooner? And he says, because she would often go for days at a time doing research at university and I wouldn't hear from her, right? Mm. So if we cut forward to spring of that year, things get a little interesting. Um, a group of her friends, including the friend who Kathy was at the party of, they all head to the police and they sort of converge on this detective. Now, Dad, what did you make of this detective in the documentary? I think he was um, <clears throat> competent mm-hmm. and I think he had a gut feeling and I think he wanted to believe the women mm-hmm. and I don't think he was enamoured with Durst. Yeah. Um, I think people, there are two strong views that people get with Durst. I don't think there's any in between <laughs> um, and I think that's a, a point worth noting in that you were quite shocked that I found him quite I mean I found him quite I'm very I find it very difficult to describe my feelings toward him but I there's a for me and this is going to sound a bit wacky Paul and I haven't said this to you before but I weirdly felt a little bit sorry for him is that because he was old and frail in the possibly and I thought he was a bit doddery and he was he was he had a certain sort of charm i can't um, i can't deny that i i i feel but then christine and i were sitting discussing this matter this morning at our local coffee shop yep and christine said to me in her usual words of wisdom yes john um but he and she does make make reference to something we're going to talk about soon yep and Christine said, "Look, if someone does that, clearly they're they're completely fucked." Yes, and I think that is a. And I agree. Yeah, I agree. But I think it's, you, it's still, you know. Yeah, Dad, uh, listeners, Dad has a tendency to, and this is, I think, a good quality mostly, uh, to empathise very heavily with people who look vulnerable or f- seem vulnerable in some way. It's a really good impulse to have, but I think. And what's really interesting is that I, I don't think your read on Robert Durst would have been the same if you met him in person. I think maybe because it's been edited and presented in a way, I think you're smart enough and after years in the police force, I think you would have met... If you'd met him and people had told you what he'd been accused of or what he'd done and then you'd sat down with him for a while, you would have come out of the room and gone, something's not fucking right there. But because it's cut up and edited and pieced together in a specific way, it's easy to become susceptible to his charms, which is what Kathy did, which is how she ended up where she ended up. And... Let's just cut back to that. So let's talk about the doorman, okay? Mm. So Durst studied at university with a woman called Susan. And Susan, um, God, Susan Berman is such an interesting figure. So she's the daughter of a real-life gangster, okay? Mm. So she's studying at the same university as Durst, and they become very good friends. And what happens is she's sort of on the scene very, very early in this story, but when the doorman is pressed, when he gets interrogated, he reveals that actually uh, he, he he didn't see her. He he may have been actually pressured. And then it turns out that one of the prevailing theories here is that Susan Berman was the one who called the dean at the university and pretended to be Kathy. Mm-hmm. And then Durst's story about when and where he made the call, or like when he, when he talked to his wife, that, that all starts to fall apart. That doesn't actually work. So the doorman's like, I only saw her from behind. So I saw a woman enter. And, I, and every, basically everything starts to fall apart. Hmm. And one of, this, one of the assertions is that Susan was helping her friend Robert cover all this up. Dad, what, what, were your, what was your read on the Susan issue? <clears throat> well, Durst said that he called his wife mm-hmm. 
he said he called her from a public telephone box, which yep. is odd. Mm-hmm. Then they find out that the nearest telephone box to his place in the country is a long, long way away. Mm-hmm. So one has to say, why didn't he use his home phone? It's it's all lies. It's all fabrication. And he senses that things are beginning to unravel. But this particular woman that was a friend, she kind of becomes his spokesperson. Oh, yes, yeah, Susan Berman. Yeah. And her father was actually a mobster in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And Durst is very clever. He understands that she understands what it means in terms of the cone of silence. She can't say anything. And also it's rather um, convenient to then be able to introduce into the story the fact that perhaps there were mobster ties, which sort of takes away... and. Can we now at this juncture just jump forward slide to say that Durst was actually found not guilty of the murder? Well, they didn't actually have a body, so they couldn't they couldn't convict. But, but the jury, although, what, although you don't need a body to convict. No, but what's interesting is the um, he secretly divorced her. Yes. Um, in 1990, he sold the house they owned, which is down by the lake. Uh, the police had checked the lake over and over. Mm. Weirdly, he told the police that he um, he went and I think played cards or had a drink with the next door neighbor as part of his alibi. And then the neighbor literally said to the cops, no, he didn't. He never showed up. Mm. Like, li- li- not a single aspect of the story made sense or linked up. But there are all kinds of assertions that the police are being stonewalled by his family. His attorneys were stonewalling them. I mm. fucking guarantee you that his family knew exactly what he'd done and were covering for them. It's It's... It's these people are fucked. Case in point, later on, uh, Durst's brother, who runs the company, uh, Durst's brother actually took out a restraining order because he was in fear for his life. But he mm. did that much later, and for reasons we will talk about. If we jump forward a couple of years, the police have had trouble pinning down a case in the uh, in the missing uh, case of Kathy Durst. Right? Um, they can't find any evidence. Uh, Durst has, like I said, secretly divorced his wife, citing abandonment. As the as the as the mm. means, yeah. right? Which technically is correct. Technically correct. If you cut forward to August in two thousand, Susan Berman is working as a screenwriter, so she's actually trying to launch a pilot, which is sort of it's been referred to as her answer to The Sopranos. She's already written a book or two about uh, her father's links with organized crime. She's already been sent a whole bunch of money. I think three point four million was sent to her from casino earnings. So mm. obviously she's. She's an odd figure, right? Mm. But she starts asking Durst for money, okay? Mm. She writes a letter asking him for money. He starts sending through chunks of change. And there's a few dates here that are quite important. December 19th, 2000, Durst flies from New York to San Fran and then starts driving south. People don't find this out until later, right? December 23rd, four days later, Durst flies from New York, flies to New York from San Francisco. So clearly in between that period, he's driven south and gone back up. December 24th, the next day, December 24th, 2000, Susan Berman is found dead in her house. Now, the police suspect it's someone who knew her because uh, she let them in. There's no signs of break-in. Nothing's been taken. She's living in a really... So at this point, Susan Berman was living in LA. As I mentioned, uh, she was working as a screenwriter. She had met a guy who had two children and then the relationship had fallen apart, but she kind of stayed in touch with these two adult children, both of whom are on the documentary, but one of whom, the son, is featured very prominently on on the documentary. And at that point, we get to see all kinds of things. They show you crime scene photographs and footage from Susan Berman's house. You even see the body uh, where it it landed. What did you make of her uh, living situation, Dad? It was... um Cluttered, uh-huh. um, messy, um, just, it was depressing. How, how, how would you describe it? Well, the thing is, you've described coming into houses where people have been hoarding and whatnot. Mm. But the yeah. argument from people was that she was basically really down in her luck. She had a list of people who they suspected she was either calling in favors from or blackmailing. Mm. She was 
she had barely any money. What's interesting is the case into Kathy's missing, like the missing persons case for Kathy Durst had been reopened, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you make the logical connection that Susan helped Robert with the case, and if you then look at the fact that she had asked Robert for a lot of money at that point, and he'd sent her two checks for about mm. 25,000 yep. USD each. Black mm. mile. That's, I mean, that's what I thought, mm. right? And shortly after that, uh, she's found dead. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So the, the, the DA at this point, Janine Pirro, had been making really strong inroads and was they were about to uh, grab Susan and basically press her for information. And then uh, Rob... So you, you, you can paint the picture here, right? So the DA needs to talk to Susan. Susan asks Robert for a lot of money because clearly she's connected to this case somehow. She knows something. Robert then flies up from uh, where Susan lives, drives south for a couple of days, drives north and flies away again during that time. Anyway, they don't have any evidence. And uh, they don't have any evidence. But then Durst moves to Texas and he pulls a full Buffalo Bill, doesn't he, Dad? I think it's clever what he did. Right. So what? What do you, talk us through what he did. Well, he moves into a, into a boarding house. Remember, there was a time, Paul, in the previous decade... decade where mm-hmm. he'd been described as a vagabond for six years. A vagabond is a person that just travels across the country mm-hmm. that sort of hitchhikes. Um, you, you, that sort of... I don't know whether we would have that sort of person in Australia, someone that basically lives on the highways and back roads and, you know, but basically lives off charity mm-hmm. and becomes very dishevelled and... But he had almost I mean, homeless. But he had a, he, he, he had, had a shitload of money at the time. He a wasn't. lot of money. But this is very yeah. interesting, and it's sort of, for me, it, it, it it's slightly eccentric. But who's to say that he wasn't out there committing further crimes? He has been implicated in other murders. There was a girl that went missing when he owned the health food store. There are lots and lots of other sort of nefarious um, cases that are unsolved that he has been linked to. So yeah. he could have been doing something for six years on... Who knows? I mean, yeah. but it's fascinating. But back to um, this particular Texas. situation where he... And I ha- you have to take your hat off to him because I think it's, it's almost comical. His disguise, not only was the disguise of a woman where he would have had female clothing and a wig moving into a pretty sad, decrepit boarding house, mm-hmm. but his... Here's something that is a twist that I find very interesting in that he was also a mute. He couldn't talk. Yeah, so well, she, to, make the story, talk. to make the story stick, he pretends to be a mute old woman called Dorothy Siner. And Dorothy Siner is the name of a, an ex-classmate of his. Mm. He's living in a shitty little boarding house in Texas. And by the way, this is after the Susan Berman thing and after the DA has been pursuing the case, to trying to reopen the case into his missing wife uh, back in the 80s. So it seems retrospectively pretty obvious that with the net closing in and having committed 
probably committed two murders at this point. He goes on the run, and because he's fucking nuts, he decides to pull a full Buffalo Bill and live in a boarding house in Texas next to a strange, eccentric, older man called uh, Morris Black. I'm saying eccentric because that's the story that was taken to the police when in September 2001, they find Morris Black's dismembered torso sawn up and floating in the bay, mm-hmm. right? They yep. find it, it's, it's wrapped up and in... The, it's wrapped up in newspaper and in the newspaper, the address of the fucking boarding house that he's from is found. So whilst they never find his head, which is how they would identify him. Uh, by the way, it was so interesting watching this, listeners, and the hands were missing. And because of dad's... I would say education that he's given us. My first thought was, oh, they didn't want him to be identified. The head, you take, get rid of the head and the hands, and suddenly you can't identify this person, right? That mm. was that seemed pretty obvious. But they trace it back to the boarding house. They find blood in the room. They pull up the rug. Uh, they find blood leading from Morris Black's apartment into this Dorothy Signer's apartment, and that's where they they literally find the murder weapon and. And the boots. And they very quickly piece together the fact that Dorothy Siner is a man and mm. that the man is Durst. Yes. And this is when the uh This is when the, the sandwich thing happens. Mm. Talk us through talk us through what you <clears throat> felt watching the CCTV footage. Well, I feel either A <clears throat> back to your Analogy of Durst being completely having utter contempt for everyone and everything. Yeah, he's so blasé. He walks into a store and he steals a sandwich. Yeah, he just goes in and takes it. And the owner of the store. This must have happened in slow motion because I just can't imagine the local PD coming under siren to a convenience store to apprehend a man who's stolen a sandwich. That's not how it works. I believe, based on the available facts, is that he actually wanted to get caught Mm -hmm. because he is narcissistic. We know that. And that does come out in the film. He enjoyed, he reveled in being filmed. It's it's sad. It's bizarre. Um, his mind is, is fascinating. But I also believe, based on what I have seen, is that, and I'm not making excuses, Paul, but I actually think he was losing his marbles. Well, what would you say to that? There's a degree of... No, I don't think so. It seems like there's a degree of deliberateness to what he's doing. It's just that... I don't know. It feels sometimes like he's playing a game or seeing how he could... I'm not disputing that he's not detached from reality. I'm saying that I still think there's a deliberateness to this. Because again, when they arrest him for stealing the sandwich... He's got plenty of money. He's got guns in his car. He goes on trial. And his defense attorneys, again, like his family, assign him the best legal defense possible. Probably because they don't want to have the uh, have the Durst name dragged through the mud. Because the Dursts own a massive swath of very prominent buildings in New York, in the business district. They are, they are one of the richest kind of dynastic families in New York. And so they assigned him incredible, incredible legal defense who basically argued that it was self-defense. And they weave this bullshit story about Black coming in and firing at him first and then they tussle and the gun. And they the documentary does a great job of talking to both legal teams. And then they he admits to doing the dismembering, but he says he does it in panic afterwards, mm. trying to get rid of the body. So at this point, even if you somehow magically believe at this point that Durst didn't do anything else he did, you need to understand that he is a guy who, uh, whilst hiding out in drag, decided to uh, tussle with a guy. The guy died, and then instead of going to the authorities, he decided to saw up the body and dump it in the bay. Mm. So... He's found not guilty of murdering Morris Black. Hmm. And then he pleads guilty to some minor felonies, bail jumping and... Urinating on the the lolly stand. If I I was Durst's lawyer, legal team, as a defence, I would have dressed Durst up 
in drag mm-hmm. in court, I would have had some super professional makeup artists come in and make him really, really nice and sexy. Well, no, because he didn't have access to those makeup artists. He was no, doing no, it himself. I understand, but this is part of the defense. Right, okay. I would have had professional makeup people make him look really nice and sexy and bring him into court and say to the jury, mm-hmm. look how alluring this this guy is, and then use the defense, the self-defense thing to say that the other guy, the, the, the poor elderly guy, um, got the hots for him and came in and put the hard word on him. That's an insane thing to say. Do you think so? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, that, that, that would have had to thrown out. If we jump forward a little bit, Durst kind of doesn't... He's his own worst enemy, right? So he gets paroled. He's told to stay close to his house because he gets given five years uh, with credit for time served. Okay, yeah. so he doesn't actually serve any time. So he basically has to stay close to his house. It's like a um, stay in the vicinity of his home. And... He bails on that. He goes back to the uh, to the boarding house he was stayed at. He gets caught out at a at a shopping mall by the judge who actually presided yeah. over the murder trial. And so then he gets put back in jail. In 2006, in February, he gets given the $65 million settlement from his family that you mentioned. Mm. Uh, and then he gets out of prison like a month later. And then in 2010, a feature film is released. Uh, it's directed by a guy called Andrew Jarecki, and it's called All Good Things, and it features Ryan Gosling as Durst and Kirsten Dunst as his wife, Kathy. So Durst sees this movie based on his life, and he contacts Jarecki and goes, I'm willing to go on the, go on the record and do an interview. Which, again, if you are hiding that many things in a head that is clearly disintegrating like cake thrown in water, then volunteering to do an interview is... It's really foolhardy. It is either a way to finally exonerate yourself or it is you testing the limits of what you th- perceive reality to be. So he sits down for these interviews for the documentary series, The Jinx, right? And at this point, Dad, he's associated with three deaths. The potential death of Kathy Durst, who was never found. The death of Susan Berman, his friend, who was potentially about to testify. And then to Morris Black, who was uh, murdered and dismembered and mm. dumped in the bay in, uh, in Galveston, Texas. Yeah. So he gets on tape and he does the interview. And listeners, if you're going to watch the documentary series, uh, you might want to consider pausing at this point. Okay, we're back. So he does the interviews. And the majority of the jinx is the interviews of Durst spliced together with the interviews of other people. And then they finish and they get contacted by the son of Susan Berman. And dad, what does Susan Berman's son give to them? There was the first letter sent to the police... The Beverly Hills Police. Oh, is this the one that tipped them off as to... So, oh, I remember. So, yeah, Susan Berman is found, but at some point, the police receive a, an anonymous letter. They do. And it's, and and it, it's shit writing. And yeah. it's, it's it's got a spelling mistake. What does it say? Well, it says Beverly Hills Police. and I mean, pretty well everyone knows how to spell Beverly. Yeah. There's no E between the L and the Y. Okay, so it's B, It's spelled on the letter B-E-V-E-R-L-E-Y. E-Y. Beverly yep. Hills Police. And inside mm-hmm. is a letter. What does it say? That's a, it's just... It's, the writing is appalling. Mm-hmm. And it says... Susan Berman, 1527 Benedict. Now that was, clearly would be a street. Yep. And the local police would know what that meant. Benedict Canyon is the street, okay. I believe. Benedict, Benedict Canyon. It says but, cadaver. But he said so. Canyon was had a weird space canyon between. Space, and then two the, words. And then and then the word cadaver, and that's it, right? And and and, and people don't generally speaking in in my experience dealing with dead bodies. Yeah. And I've had an extensive experience. People, members of the public, never use that word. They just don't say it. They don't say cadaver. But For lots of reasons. But uh, Kathy, Kathy was a medical student, and she had a uh, like a display model cadaver in the house for over a decade. Um, that so that is a term that. Nice. Sorry, I don't think I'd have one of those in my house. Nor would I. But you know, uh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So years later, the son is going through his mother's possessions. This is Susan Berman's son, and this is after they've finished doing their interviews with uh, with Robert Durst for The Jinx. They've they've wrapped up their interviews, and yeah, they get a call from the son, and he's not in a good way. He's no, very upset, right? Very upset, because he has found a letter mm-hmm. 
in his mother's possessions. And can you guess a particular word, Paul, that has the same spelling mistake? Yeah, if you look at it, so Durst has written a letter to Susan and this poor kid who's basically considered Robert Durst an almost de facto father figure after the death of his mother. Mm. So he's... He, inter- he was interviewed in The Jinx by the film crew and he was really great he was, but he also did he, he was like uh, Durst paid for my college education and there's all this footage of them hanging out and he basically was like look it can't be him yeah. I just can't believe it's him and he's gone through this box of his mother's stuff and he's pulled out this letter that Durst wrote to his mother and it has the exact same handwriting as the anonymous note but also mm. as you pointed out dad he misspells Beverly Hills in the exact same way mm. and then the filmmakers take that they literally they show it to the people they're interviewing so they reveal that at the end of these interviews with you know the defense for robert durst during the dismemberment trial or the the da piero the da they hand over the two handwriting samples and without fail every single person goes oh fuck what have we done it's and that and that reopens that begins the process of the trial being reopened but what talk us through what hang on a sec i'm gonna get the actual wording here Jarecki and the rest of the film crew realize that they've got evidence. They've got the be- they've actually got the best lead on this case they've ever had. And they keep trying to get Durst back into a second interview because they realize they need to confront him with this and get his reaction on camera. And it's amazing watching them realize that they might only get one shot. And Durst, because he's extremely weird and flighty, keeps putting the interview off. I think mm. it might take him a few months to pin him down. Yeah. yeah. They finally get him in the room and... What's amazing, you can see Jarecki's hand shaking as he's reading because he realizes that this guy... Also, he's like, this guy killed people and I'm in the room with him and I'm really scared. Um, And so they do the interview and Durst starts belching and being weird and doesn't really... He's he he kind of starts to get a bit odd and equivocate, mm-hmm. and then they keep the camera rolling because what Durst didn't do is he leave, when you get mic'd up for an interview, Dad, you've been mic'd up mm-hmm. for interviews. We yeah. we were on the Today Show and stuff. Yeah, they put a little kind of mic up in your lapel, and there's a mic pack on your belt, and so Durst goes to the bathroom, and he doesn't turn the mic off. Or maybe this is the bathroom. Yeah, that's you're all right. This is the bathroom. There it is. You're caught. And then Durst is sent to trial off the back of this and the handwriting. The case is opened back up and he is convicted of the murder of Susan Berman. He is put in prison where he dies in 2022. Mm. But Paul, yes. I think what we need to bring in at this point is his defence counsel Yeah. in relation to what he was heard saying on the hot mic. Mm-hmm. They maintained that Durst inserted had said they think okay those are they're important words so what the jury are then 
required by the prosecution is they then all sit down in court and they listen and watch the that video many 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 times over because the defense argued that the prosecution and the and the film crew had edited the the film i mean what i read back and what i've listened to is the entire unedited yeah. portion yeah. it's not i mean it's bullshit Agree, but can, they need. Can, to, they are defending the guy, and they need to say something. So they simply inserted the words to say they think that I killed. That mm-hmm. I, but of course, that that was proven over and over again. The jury just, everyone just watched it and watched it, and, and you know. But that that's if you if you're defending someone, of course you're going to say it's been tampered with. Yeah. Or he but, meant this. Or, but yeah. you're, you're right. It was very very strong evidence, and. He was sentenced to life without parole. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was yes, and they. He wasn't convicted for Kathy's murder, although Kathy's the case of Kathy's murder, I think, is still being looked into at this point, and I hope they get some answers on that front. And then he gets he catches COVID in October sixteen in twenty twenty one, so he's popped on a ventilator on October twenty second in twenty twenty one, a couple of like a week after he's put on the ventilator, uh, he's charged with the murder of his wife, uh, but he dies. Uh, he dies January the next year he goes into cardiac arrest uh, Mm. before he can be convicted now I'm not sure whether they're actually I mean I think it's important to keep pursuing that case even though you can't convict him because at this point technically it's a cold case but what you've got here is this incredible story in which and dad and I have talked about the morality of true crime podcasts and true crime journalism and true crime books and the stuff that we do and I was saying to Tegan dad imagine if you and I interviewed a criminal right Mm. Let's say we talk to Roger Rogerson or someone like that, as yep. you suggested flippantly the other day, and I almost screamed when you said it because it's, it's a compelling yet terrifying idea. Mm. Imagine if we talk to Roger Rogerson and then he leaves his microphone on and goes to the bathroom and fucking borderline confesses to a murder that people could never pin on him. And mm. then we take that to the courts and it reopens. Imagine, imagine if that happened. Mm. Imagine, would you feel a weight of responsibility or would you feel like actually we were kind of doing our jobs? Um, I'd I'd be happy. I think it'd be extraordinary. Be very pleasing for the people that that to this day don't know what happened to a particular person. Yeah. Um, and that's why when people say things as they're about to die, it's generally regarded in law as um they're telling the truth. Right, because they get nothing to gain. Yeah, but then, of course, if you are a very, very bad person mm-hmm. and really want to fuck with everyone, yeah, you can lie as you're about to die and just go, I'm going out with a bang and I'm just, really going to throw a spanner in the works. So plant, plant some seeds. Plant yeah. seeds and just sort of let them go, let, let, let them ponder. Yeah. It's so interesting. You know, then there's the, the famous case of, you know, uh, Mick Drury, who was shot ostensibly at the order of, Roger Rogerson, mm-hmm. and he made certain admissions. We did a podcast on this years ago, and of course he was it was a dying declaration, yeah. and he, he spilled his guts. And guess what? What he survived, and he's alive today. So there, that's a, that's that's a sort of a, you know, at what point during that process where you really believe mm-hmm. you're going to die, and then you, then you say it, yeah, and then. You, you you don't die. Oh, you, couple you of think, th- oh dear, I've just... Golly, now my life's in danger. <laughs> There's a one other interesting little tidbit I'd like to point out. During the documentary series, they talk with his wife. And not Kathy. They talk with his, uh, with his other wife. Mm. A woman he married uh, at some point during the 90s. And she's talking to the legal team and to the police. And she seems very evasive and very strange. And it turns out Robert later even admits this. And I think she admits it too, that he gave her power of attorney... He married her so that she would have power of attorney so that once he started to get the thumb pressed on him by the DA and the case came down, he wouldn't lose his fortune. It was a marriage of opportunities. Yes, yes. She ended up marrying one of his lawyers, actually. God. And because uh, I read his obituary, he was a lawyer and a real estate mogul as well. And he uh, passed away with his loving wife next to him. What a strange, 
world. And what's bizarre is, again, all the connections to all these famous people, it's it's bonkers. This guy was just walking around New York. At one point in the docker, he walks into a Starbucks and they ask for his name and he just says, uh, Robert. And no one in there recognizes him, but imagine sitting there ordering uh, Starbucks and being next to a murderer like Robert Durst. Mm. Mere days, hours before he's about to accidentally confess on a hot mic that he did in fact murder those people. Now, I hope they find justice for Kathy because her family deserves to have closure. In the case of uh, Morris Black, I think the jury's... I think it's that's done, right? Yeah. I mean, he got... You know, he admitted to self-defense, so they're never going to reopen that, probably. But I guess what I would say is uh, rich people are a different species, you know? On some level, they are just capable of the most bizarre things this is a really amazing documentary even if you listened all the way through this i would argue you should still go and watch it because it's very well made the production values are great and there are certain streaming services who have sort of turned true crime docos into kind of a garish novelty where it's not really well made and it's just a bit cheap and it's just kind of knocked out to kind of tap into a zeitgeist this feels like a five-hour movie it is beautifully made it is incredibly well shot and the filmmakers have the wherewithal to actually try and catch the killer, and they kind of do. So mm. I would recommend going and watching The Jinx. Uh, too sweet. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, well, that's all the time we have for this week's uh, packed episode of Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Thank you for checking in, everybody. We were going to be back at the end of the week with an episode of Loose Ends. In the meantime, have a good week, and we will see you soon for more Loose Units. Bye, everyone. Cheerio. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.